Hello and welcome to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Got a lot to cover today, so I'm going to just jump right in. As always, starting the program with the uh, gospel from the extraordinary form of the Mass for this week, this past Sunday, was um, the Feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, it is so called because on this day, uh, the 15th of August, according to a very old pious belief, the Blessed Virgin was body and soul taken up into heaven. It is a feast of great antiquity. It was um, fixed on the 15th of August by the request of Emperor Maurice, and in the 9th century, uh, this Roman feast was extended to the entire church. So everybody started, and I think that local churches already celebrated the Assumption. They just, everybody just moved it to the 15th in the 9th century. Uh, and all of this, by the way, is a good answer to those who would suggest that uh, the church somehow invented the doctrine of the Assumption, or that they invented the doctrine of the Assumption in 1950, when it uh, was made the fourth Marian dogma by Pope Pius XII, right? It's now a dogma of the Church. Clearly, it was a part of the Church's tradition from the very beginning and celebrated universally in the liturgy for more than a thousand years uh, before that dogma was proclaimed. Also a note to our ultramontanist friends, this is a reminder that the Pope is the servant of the deposit of faith and not its author. Pope Pius XII was, in fact, following a long-standing tradition when he proclaimed the Fourth Marian Dogma, not using his office to invent some new teaching. Uh, the introit of the traditional Latin Mass um, on this Sunday, or this day, it just happens to be Sunday this year, <clears throat> pardon me, invites us to universal joy on this feast uh, by singing, Let us all rejoice in the Lord celebrating this festival in honor of the Most Blessed Virgin Mary, on whose assumption into heaven the angels rejoice and give praise to the Son of God. May heart, My heart hath uttered a good word. I speak my works to the King. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So on this day, the Blessed Virgin Mary was assumed into heaven to take her place at the right hand of our Lord Jesus as the Queen Mother of our Heavenly King. And this royal aspect of the feast, I think, it gets somewhat lost today. But consider this, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, whose feast day we also celebrate this week, it's coming up on the 20th, uh, he is the composer of many great Marian prayers, including the Memorare. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Now, <clears throat> pardon me, it might surprise you to learn that in the original version of St. Bernard's Memorare, Catholics used to pray to Mary, To thee do I come, before thee I kneel, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer them. So the, the, the image that Bernard you know, was putting forth was us our, 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 petitioning Our Lady on our knees 
asking her not merely to hear and answer us, but to hear and answer our prayers. Now, I suspect the wording was changed at some point over theological concerns. After all, we do not worship Mary uh, as kneeling before her uh, might imply, or that the idea that she would answer our prayers, obviously, while we hope for her to hear us and intercede for us, we don't believe that she can answer our prayers by her own power, you know, independent of, of her divine son. Now, obviously, that is not what St. Bernard intended. And frankly, I think such concerns are unfounded. Uh, in the words of Arnold Bonneville, who was a friend of St. Bernard, quote, as Christ is the Lord, Mary is lady and sovereign. He who bends the knee before the son kneels before the mother. All Catholics ought to know that we go to Jesus through Mary because she perfects our prayers when she intercedes for us with her son. You know, a a right understanding of Jesus and Mary as king and queen mother of the kingdom of heaven reveals to us that Jesus will never refuse his mother anything. And the reason is that her powerful intercession for us will never conflict with his holy will. Like I say, she perfects our prayers. Now, the gospel for the Feast of the Assumption comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. At that time, Jesus entered a certain town, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And he had a sister called Mary, who was sitting also at the Lord's feet, hearing his word. But Martha was busy about much serving, who stood and said, Lord, hast thou no care what my sister hath left me, that my sister hath left me alone to serve? Speak to her, therefore, that she help me. And the Lord answering said to her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful, and thou art now troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary hath chosen the best part, which shall not be taken away from her. Uh, thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So the church traditionally reads this gospel on the Feast of the Assumption because, while obviously the Mary uh, in the gospel is Mary Magdalene, sister of Martha and Lazarus. But the story, the point of the story, readily admits to being applied to the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. This is what is known in the liturgy as the accommodated sense of Scripture. Uh, St. Bruno of Osti explains it uh, thusly. He says, These two women are the leaders of the army of the church, meaning Martha and Mary, and all the faithful follow them. Some walk in Martha's footsteps, others in Mary's. But no one can reach our heavenly fatherland unless he follows one or the other. Rightly, then, have our fathers ordained that this gospel should be read on the principal feast of Our Lady, for she is signified by these two sisters." For no other creature combined the privileges of both lives, active and contemplative, as did the Blessed Virgin. Like Martha, she received Christ. Yea, she did more than Martha, for she received him not only into her house, but into her womb. She conceived him, gave him birth, carried him in her arms, and ministered to him more frequently than did Martha. On the other hand, she listened, like Mary, to his words and kept them for our sake, pondering them in her heart. She contemplated his humanity and penetrated more deeply than all others into his divinity. She chose the better part, which shall not be taken away from her. 
So this gospel has been the, the foundation of the Catholic belief regarding action and contemplation. You know, the, the active life and the contemplative life. And the Blessed Virgin Mary is the greatest exemplar of the fact that action and contemplation are, in fact, complementary. As usual, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, I think, put it best when he said, quote, Action and contemplation are very close companions. They live together in one house on equal terms. Martha and Mary are sisters. Now, regarding the assumption, as long as we're talking about St. Bernard, he said, He whom she received at his entrance into this poor world receives her today at the gate of the holy city. No spot on earth so worthy of the Son of God as the virgin's womb, no throne in heaven so lofty as that whereon the Son of Mary places her in return. What a reception each gave to the other. It is beyond the power of expression because beyond the reach of our thought. Who shall declare the generation of the Son and the assumption of the mother? And so finally, uh, something that we can extract from this for uh, our own benefit is that when your soul is troubled or when you are beset by many anxieties, just remember, as Jesus uh, said to Martha and Mary, there is but one thing necessary. And what is that one necessary thing? It is to glorify God precisely by the salvation of your soul. Uh, So be like Martha and fulfill your earthly duties, but in the process also be like Mary looking only to God and avoiding all distractions and really being ready to sacrifice everything rather than suffer the loss of your soul. For, as our Lord Jesus says in Mark eight thirty six, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? <clears throat> now, um, I saw a number of things on the Internet this week. Um, uh, the reactions to Traditionis Custodes keep coming in. Uh, more and more Novus Ordo commentators are uh, putting their two cents in on the document and on the traditional Mass in general. Uh, I saw an interesting piece that was from uh, last month, from the 23rd of January, that was posted by Anthony Ruff, OSB, on the Pray Tell blog. And um, he's talking about a post at Sapientia, which is the website of the Center on Religion and Culture at Fordham University. Uh, by uh, uh, David Gibson. It was a piece called Latin Mass Hysteria. Latin Mass Hysteria. Okay, you see what he did there? Okay. Uh, (laughs) And he says that among the misperceptions that uh, Gibson takes up is that, quote, Pope Francis is throttling some burgeoning traditionalist revival of a superior form of Catholicism that will reinvigorate the Church. The idea, he says that Catholics are pining for the Tridentine rite is the trend story that never dies. But, he says, in fact, the numbers show a tiny number of Tridentine faithful whose ranks are not growing, and certainly not globally. And he points out that the United States is home to just 6% of the world's Catholics, but nearly 40% of the Tridentine masses. Well, is he right? Uh, or can these facts bear another interpretation? We'll talk about that and more when we return. Lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, round two here on No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. Before the break, uh, I was mentioning a blog post I saw at the Pray Tell blog, which actually was referencing another article on the internet from the Center on Religion and Culture at Fordham University that suggested that uh, the traditional Latin Mass was, uh, that it is not really a, a, a significant movement, and in fact, the adherents of the traditional Mass are not numerically significant. They are, in fact, tiny, was his adjective, and not growing, certainly not globally. Uh, he says that 40% of the traditional Masses are here in the United States, where we have only 6% of the world's Catholics. Now, assuming, let's, you know, all this is true, uh, but that statistics are subject to interpretation, the question is, if traditionalism is really tiny and insignificant, then why is the Pope and uh, the progressivist bishops, why are they all so afraid of the traditional mass? <laughs> you know, uh, why, are they, why are they threatened by this supposedly tiny movement? Now, Anthony Ruff, who, whose article I'm uh, referring on the Pray Tell blog, he said, um, while the number of faithful interested in the pre-Vatican II mass may be tiny, Surely the Pope is aware that the number of clergy interested in it is much higher and is disproportionate to the needs and sentiments of the laity. It would be interesting to know what proportion of younger clergy celebrate the pre-Vatican II Mass or what proportion of seminarians are supportive of it. Pope Francis's motu proprio probably reflects his concern about the state of the clergy. So they're saying he's not really concerned about people going to the Mass. He's worried about priests who want to celebrate it. Well, okay, uh, Let's start here. Um, if 40% of the traditional Latin masses are in the United States, that means that the majority of them, 60%, are outside the United States. And of the people who uh, attend the traditional Latin mass around the world, a large portion are in France, where in less than five years, there will be more SSPX priests than there are diocesan priests. Also, I suspect that... Uh, these statistics don't represent those groups that are not in full communion with Rome, as they say, SSPX being uh, the, by far the largest. I can also tell you anecdotally that the numbers attending the traditional Latin Mass, the number of Catholics uh, that actually assist at the traditional Mass, has doubled in the last year and then grown another 40% just since the uh, promulgation of Traditionis Custodes. Right, Pope Francis is mode proprio that was clearly intended to seal the fate of the traditional mass. Now, we will see as things go forward if those numbers remain consistent or if there's, you know, continued growth. Um, or, you know, it, it may just be that there are a number of folks that are just curious about the traditional Latin mass and they're hearing in the Catholic press that it's going to be, you know, banned forever. So maybe they're just going to, to, to check it out while they have the chance. Um, you know, and, there, and of course, there were some folks, I suspect, who were on the fence, so to speak, liturgically, uh, and it was precisely the injustice of Traditionis Custodes that uh, was, you know, became for them the proverbial last straw. Now, it's the opinion of this Anthony Russ fellow that the interest shown in the traditional Mass by young clergy is, quote, disproportionate to the needs and sentiments of the laity. All right, that's his opinion. Uh, but I, I ask, how important were the needs and sentiments of the laity when Paul VI forced his liturgical revolution on the entire church? You know, did any lay people want 
a new mass? Now, he, it was his opinion that they needed it, but, you know, the, the sentiments of the lady were, were clearly not taken into to account. I mean, did anybody ask for it? Uh, if they did, um, I can't find any evidence to support it. On the contrary, what we know for a fact is that millions of Catholics immediately abandoned the practice of their faith after the introduction of the Novus Ordo Mise. And in, in the ensuing decades, that decline uh, has just continued unabated in the Western world, right? The former Christendom, the, the, the one part of the world that was most affected by uh, uh, Catholicism, you know, to the point that in some formerly Catholic countries, the uh, percentage of Catholics who attend Sunday Mass is now in the single digits. You know, uh, you know, even here in the United States, only about 23% of Novus Ordo Catholics, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, attend Mass regularly, right, as opposed to 99% of traditional Catholics. So take from that what you will. Traditional Catholics may be small in number, comparatively, but we actually go to church. And I think that's the future of the church. You know, simply because, you know, as I told Cy Kellett on Catholic Answers back when my book came out, liberal Catholics don't beget more liberal Catholics. They tend to beget non-Catholics. And we might remember the words of our Lord concerning mustard seeds and how those things that start out small, you know, I don't know how much hope people had for the Christian movement when it was only 12 guys in, um, you know, a backwater of the Roman Empire. So I wouldn't count out the traditional Mass just yet. You know, I started attending traditional Latin Mass around the turn of the century, and precisely not because I had a problem with the Novus Ordo, but because I, I was just looking for a refuge from the unrelenting and, and increasingly asinine liturgical abuse that I was subjected to week after week. You know, and I remember I was working for St. Joseph Communications in 2003 when Pope St. John Paul II issued a document called Ecclesia de Eucharistia, the Church of the Eucharist, in, in which he decried these abuses and promised to address, you know, specific concerns in a follow-up document. And he was as good as his word, because the next year, uh, significantly on St. George's Day, April the 23rd, 2004, the Holy See released the disciplinary document promised by Ecclesia de Eucharistia, which was called Redemptionis Sacramentum, the Sacrament of Redemption. And it was subtitled, On Certain Matters to be Observed or to be Avoided Regarding the Most Holy Eucharist. This uh, document, Redemptionis Sacramentum, was intended to be the Magna Carta of proper celebration of the new liturgy and to mark an end to this, you know, long season of liturgical abuse. Uh, Unfortunately, it was, for all intents and purposes, a dead letter. Now, Pope Francis, in his letter uh, to the U.S., or not the U.S., to to the world episcopate, his letter to the bishops, that accompanied Tradicionis Custodes. And again, for those keeping score, this is the document from last month that was intended to be the, the virtual death warrant of the traditional Latin Mass. In this letter, he tells the bishops, and I quote, at the same time, meaning is at the same time as you, you know, abolish the traditional Mass, I ask that you be vigilant in ensuring that every liturgy be celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after Vatican Council II without the eccentricities that can easily degenerate into abuses. And then he goes on to say, I am saddened by abuses in the celebration of the liturgy on all sides. 
in common with Benedict XVI, I deplore the fact. And now here, he's going to actually quote from Benedict XVI's letter to the bishops that accompanied Samorum Pontificum, all right, which, which promoted the traditional Mass. He says, I deplore the fact that, now quoting Benedict, in many places the prescriptions of the new Missal are not observed in celebration, but indeed come to be interpreted as an authorization for or even a requirement of creativity, which leads to almost unbearable distortions, unquote. <clears throat> have to ask, can Pope Francis possibly be serious? I, and I ask this in all sincerity, because Redemptionis Sacramentum from 2004 not only shared this, this same sentiment uh, about liturgical abuse, but it also presented definite prescriptions to correct the situation. You know, that was the point of Samorum Pontificum, was to, to liberate the traditional Mass so that there could be some refuge from such liturgical abuse. Because, I mean, you know, as Francis himself admits in this document, you know, tacitly, well, the traditional Latin Mass has done nothing but grow in the last 14 years. Virtually nothing was done to enforce Redemptionis Sacramentum uh, in the prior, in the last 17 years, ever since it was promulgated. And how else can you explain the, the uh, liturgical abuses that are identified and reprobated in Redemptionis Sacramentum? How is it that they are all virtually all alive and well in a parish near you? In fact, you know, even, you know, they've heaped more abuses on since. And it's well to remember that, that to reprobate doesn't just mean to, to prohibit, it means to condemn. These are, you know, damnable abuses. And yet... Neither popes nor bishops have bothered to enforce these rules. Uh, you know, for that matter, much of the content of Redemptionis Sacramentum is, is merely a, a recitation of the liturgical law that's already in place and has been in place since the 1970s, but has been universally ignored because the rules don't matter if no one is willing to enforce them. Which brings us back to Traditionis Custodes. Uh, Sean Blanchard in an article for the Notre Dame Church Life Journal. And by the way, I, I can say this, if it was not for Traditionis Custodes, I would never in a million years have read anything from the Notre Dame Church Life Journal, okay? <laughs> but Sean Blanchard there, he argues that Traditionis Custodes was never really about the liturgy, or at least not me only about the liturgy, but about controlling the narrative of the meaning of Vatican II something that he says all the post-conciliar popes have sought to do, and that is certainly true. Uh, the narrative that Pope Francis has chosen is the one that his immediate predecessor, Benedict XVI, condemned, the so-called hermeneutic of rupture. You know, and it's well known, and I go over this in, in detail in my book, which is, by the way, I've mentioned it twice now, um, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, available from Ignatius Press, ignatius.com, or you can go to matthewarnold.org and order your copy there. Um, but it is well known that both the radical progressives on the left and the radical traditionalists on the right agree on one thing, that Vatican II was a rupture in the history of the church, that, that the, the post-conciliar church, which we experience today, is, is something other than the pre-conciliar church. You know, their, their only matter for dispute is whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Now, Benedict XVI said no. 
No, to properly understand Vatican II and, you know, everything that's gone on in the last 50 years, you must employ an hermeneutic of continuity. Now, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski wrote uh, recently an, an article for The Remnant that says, uh, conservative Novus Ordo Catholics who want to follow Benedict XVI's hermeneutic of continuity have a problem because of two things. He says, number one, that they, they believe Vatican II does not mark a rupture with the Church, but can and must be read as being in continuity with the preceding doctrine and practice. So, in other words, with tradition or orthodoxy. However, they also believe, number two, that the Pope's teaching must always be accepted and his orders must always be obeyed, as per their reading of Vatican I as well as Vatican II. And this is, you know, uh, unfortunately, there's, there's a contradiction here. This is how Kirk and Spock used to blow up alien computers by creating cog- cognitive dissonance, two things that, that contradict each other and trying to hold those contradictory ideas at the same time. We're going to talk about why that doesn't work when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Before the break, I was talking about an article uh, in The Remnant, a recent article by Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. You'll notice, you know, I've been, I've been uh, quoting Dr. K for, you know, quite a bit in, in the, the last few months, and especially, I think, since Traditionis Custodes came out. And it's not because I agree with everything that he says or because I am some sort of acolyte uh, to uh, Dr. Kwasniewski. But I think, you know, he's, he's extremely prolific. I mean, he's, he's posting articles virtually every day. And I think that he actually, he really has his finger on the pulse of, you know, sort of the, the uh, prevailing uh, thought in the traditional movement. So I, I thought it was, uh, it was very interesting, this article he posted on The Remnant, because what he's saying is that Traditionis Custodes um, marks a real problem for the, you know, Novus Ordo conservative Catholic, because they believe, number one, that the Vatican II doesn't mark a rupture with the Church, that it needs to be understood in light of tradition, but they also believe that the Pope's teaching has to be accepted and obeyed uh, in all circumstances. Well, the problem here is that according to, you know, Dr. Kosnevsky, there's a contradiction. He says, quote, it is clear that the fundamental premise underlying Traditionis Custodes is that the Council was a rupture with preceding theology. This must be so because the preconciliar liturgy, the Lex Arandi, that is the law of prayer that developed over 1,600 years, and which up until 1962 expressed the, the Lex Credendi, or the law of belief, he says, is no longer the Lex Arandi or the Lex Credendi of the postconciliar church. The Novus Ordo and the traditional Latin Mass are incompatible as liturgical forms because their respective theologies are incompatible, or at least sufficiently so, to make one a clear and present danger to the other. Now, contradiction is a problem. Uh, I teach RCIA, and every year I always start, before we talk about theology or the Ten Commandments or the Seven Sacraments or anything, I always start with some basic philosophy. Because it's important to, to define terms and, and to talk about, you know, why these things make sense. And uh, 
I always tell the converts about the principle of non-contradiction. You know, because according to Aristotelian and Thomistic philosophy, a thing cannot be and not be in the same sense at the same time. Such a contradiction is a nonsense. Hence the name of this program, No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, the principle of contra- non-contradiction is one of the building blocks of rational thought. So, uh, if the conservative Catholic belief is correct, and Vatican II didn't change the Catholic faith, which is the position that I hold, by the way, um, unfortunately, this, this naturally contradicts the belief that Francis, as Pope, must be correct in his teaching when he says the Novus Ordo is the, is the unique, or in, in Italian, the only law of prayer for the Church today, which logically then, you know, I would point out, disqualifies both the Eastern Catholic rites and the Anglican ordinariate as well. Uh, but on the other hand, if you accept the notion that the Pope must be right in this particular case, then you, then you must conclude that Vatican II did, in fact, change the faith. And the teaching of the Catholic Church after the council, is something different than her teaching before the council. You can't hold both positions simultaneously without descending into nonsense. Uh, Dr. Kosnevsky puts it this way. He says, Francis has at last created the ultimate bind. Either you accept his decision and the theological claims that stand behind it, so that the papacy, or rather the pope right now, and only he, finally becomes the sole measure of Catholicism, or you retain your conviction that Vatican II is wholly to be embraced and reject the notion that a pope should be obeyed when he attempts to impose erroneous theology on the church. This is what we might call theological checkmate. Now, this is the problem, and I don't know that I, that I necessarily agree in all points with Dr. K on this, but it's the problem with, I think I identified this um, when Benedict XVI was elected pope. You know, I was a, I'm an adult convert. I didn't become Catholic until uh, 1996. So John Paul II was the first pope I ever paid any attention to. And when Benedict XVI became pope, people were talking about, oh, he has a different style. He has a different papal style. And I thought to myself, that's, that's very dangerous. That's wrong-headed to treat um, pontificates as if they were political administrations. And now you take... Uh, Pope Formosus, as everybody knows Pope Formosus, right? <laughs> he was Pope back in the ninth century. Um, and let's see, his pontificate lasted from uh, 1891 to 1896. But his reign as Pope, uh, brief reign, was, was troubled. And it was marked by interventions and power struggles with the, the Patriarchate of Constantinople and the Kingdom of West Francia and, and the Holy Roman Empire. And he ruled, you know, bottom line, he ruled like a politician and not like a pope. And this led to the infamous Cadaver Synod. Uh, Formosus' successor, Pope Boniface VI, didn't live long enough to address the crises that Formosus had caused, but his successor, Stephen VI, called the ecclesiastical trial of Pope Formosus, who had been dead for seven months. Now, in January of 1897... Pope Stephen had his predecessor dug up and put investments and put on a throne at the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome and then put him on trial and condemned him as a heretic. And so all of the actions of his papacy were declared null and void. Okay, that's what happens when a pope treats his pontificate 
like a political administration, right? Some some future pope says, you know, oh, I'm sorry, his pontificate's a do-over. Now, see, I would suggest to you that Vatican I, which defined papal uh, infallibility, foresaw this kind of situation when it addressed the, the, the heresy that the pope is the source of church teaching rather than its servant. Vatican I says, For the Holy Spirit was promised to the successors of Peter, not so that they might, by his revelation, make known some new doctrine, but that by his assistance they might religiously guard and faithfully expound the revelation or deposit of faith transmitted by the apostles. The Pope's charism is to hand on the tradition he has received, not to remake the church in his own image or to change things around to accommodate quote-unquote modern man. Now, Benedict XVI, I think he understood this when he said, and I quote again, the power that Christ conferred upon Peter and his successors is, in an absolute sense, a mandate to serve. The power of teaching in the church involves a commitment to the service of obedience to the faith. Pope's not an absolute monarch whose thoughts and desires are law. On the contrary, the Pope's ministry is a guarantee of obedience to Christ and his word. He must not proclaim his own ideas. You see, this is the real scandal in the church today, and, and has been since Vatican II. Namely, that, that high-level churchmen, as well as rank-and-file Catholics, have taken the popes at their word that, that this, the new theology and the new paradigm and the new Pentecost and, yes, the new Mass are, in fact, new in the sense of novel or unprecedented. In a word, different Right? different than the traditional theology or the traditional philosophy or the actual Pentecost, and yes, the traditional Mass. And this is where the hermeneutic of continuity comes in. According to Benedict XVI, the documents of Vatican II need interpretation. They don't stand on face value. They must be interpreted. And this is because you know it's a pastoral council that was putting forth ideas as opposed to canons and decrees about things that you must believe or not believe. So, okay, take it that Vatican II needs interpretation. He says um, that it needs a particular hermeneutic, which is a method or theory of interpretation, or you might say an interpretational key. And so Benedict XVI said the documents of Vatican II and post-conciliar teachings must be interpreted in the light of tradition and not that tradition is to be reinterpreted in light of Vatican II, which is, of course, what, it's precisely what's happened. So, for instance, if you see an ambiguous teaching in the documents of Vatican II, the correct interpretation is the one that's compatible with tradition, and not an interpretation that would constitute a rupture or a new teaching. See, unfortunately, people on both sides of the ideological aisle have, have misrepresented the hermeneutic of continuity and, and suggested that what it really means is, you know, continuity means that everything uh, in Vatican II and everything since is somehow automatically in continuity with the Church's tradition, you know, which, which is nonsense and, and obviously a misrepresentation because if everything is automatically in continuity, then there wouldn't be any need for any hermeneutic at all. Like Dr. Kwasniewski, and, and Dr. Kwasniewski, I, I fear, may have fallen into this trap as well that when they talk about the hermeneutic continuity, they're not talking about what De Benedict really meant. But this brings me back to the point that the Church has already officially addressed the all-too-common abuses of the Novus Ordo Misae 
uh, back in 2004, you know, in Redemptionis Sacramentum. It's a document that employed the hermeneutic of continuity before that Benedict XVI even coined the term. You know, I think we will actually take a look at this document next week. We're going to look at that um, maybe in depth, not, not quite point by point because it'd be too much. But just to show not only how many things that are happening at your parish this week are in fact abuses that have been condemned by the magisterium of the church, number one, and number two, what's meant to be done about it. Which things are be, to be reprobated, which things are be, to be corrected immediately, and so forth. I think that it gives you some ammunition. In fact, back at the time, we did a, I thought I had a copy over here, we did a, a, a brochure, kind of a fold-out brochure, that pointed out all the different uh, teachings that were, and all the different things that were mandated by this document. It was called uh, Stop Liturgical Abuse Now. Uh, I'll mention it to Terry Barber. Maybe that's something we can put up on the website or, or, you know, if we have some copies left, we'll be able to distribute them to people. Because I think, I think that um, the Novus Ordo really needs to be properly celebrated. I can tell you right now, as much as I love the traditional Mass, and I do, I would never have gone to a traditional Mass in the first place if my parish church had simply been celebrating the Novus Ordo Mass the way it's supposed to be celebrated. If they'd simply followed the, their own rules in the first place, there wouldn't be a problem. Okay, talking about that next week, we're going to come back uh, with the parable of the Good Samaritan when we return on No Nonsense Catholic here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. All right, we started the show with uh, the gospel from the Feast of the Assumption because the Assumption this year fell on a Sunday, and it's one of those uh, feasts that's important enough to uh, trump the uh, Mass that would have been said on that day, which was the 12th Sunday after Pentecost. And I wanted to go over the gospel for the 12th Sunday after Pentecost, which is the Doctor of the Law and the Parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's just jump right in. Again, when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he met a doctor of the law, who, hoping to tempt our Lord, asked him through curiosity, Master, what must I do to possess eternal life? Jesus answered, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He replied, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, and with thy whole soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus said to him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But the doctor, wishing, wishing to justify himself, said, Who is my neighbor? So he's kind of suggesting that, you know, because maybe uh, he felt in his own heart that he hadn't really practiced this commandment faithfully, so he wants to suggest that it's a, a disputed point. Right? Uh, but, and then Jesus, of course, replied with the parable of the Good Samaritan. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who had also stripped him, and having wounded him, went away, leaving him half dead. Now it happened that a certain priest went down the same way, and seeing him, passed by. In like manner also a Levite, when he was near the place, and saw him, passed by. But a certain Samaritan, being on his journey, came near him, and seeing him, was moved with compassion. And going up to him, he bound his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and setting him on his own beast. Uh, or, say, pouring in oil and wine, and setting him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two pence and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever thou shalt spend over and above, I at my return will repay thee. Having finished the parable, Jesus asked the doctor, Which of these, in thy opinion, was neighbor to him that fell among the robbers? The doctor of the law replied, That uh, he that showed mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, Go thou and do likewise. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So you, you have in this parable a Jewish priest with uh, his assistant returning from Jerusalem to Jericho, where they presumably had uh, accomplished their service at the temple. Um, and the poor man, they see him despoiled by uh, laying on the road. But the priest, uh, who has just you know uh, returned from the service of the merciful God, has no compassion and goes his way. And the Levite, too, passes by unmoved. Both of them knew and preached the divine law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, but neither of them practiced what they taught. And then the man who did show compassion was a Samaritan. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day hated the Samaritans. They were, after all, descendants of the, of the lost tribes of Israel, quote-unquote, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. By the way, they were not lost in the sense that they wandered off one day and couldn't find their way home. <laughs> they, were, they were lost in the sense that they had intermarried with the Gentiles and were no longer you know, pure members of the chosen people. And that's what made this parable so shocking to the uh, listeners of Jesus, that, the, that the, the priest and the Levite would be the bad guys and the Samaritan would be the good guy. Now, the love that the Samaritan in the parable shows uh, is, first of all, real, because he felt compassion, uh, you know, from his heart for the wounded man, real sympathy. And he stopped when he perceived the poor man lying there. He went up to him, whereas the priest and Levite passed by. Um, and, uh, you know, his love was, what did I say, real. And because it was real, it was practical. So he wanted to help the poor man, and he did everything in his power to alleviate his sufferings and to save his life. He interrupted his journey. He tended to the wounded man himself all that day. Uh, and when his business called him away, he left money, left him in charge of the innkeeper, and said, you know, if uh, I'm going to come back, and if there's any more money that I owe you, I'll pay it then. So the love that he showed him was real and practical and also universal. He knew that the wounded man was a Jew, the enemy of his people. And he knew that under similar circumstances, he would be very unlikely to assist him. But at the same time, he takes pity on him, forgiving the enmity shown to the Samaritans by the Jews. He saw only in this poor man a suffering fellow creature and a brother and helped him as such. By this parable, now this is a story that our Lord you know, made up, but this parable shows, it teaches us, that every man is our neighbor, that our love ought to be real and practical and universal. And in light of everything we've been talking about today, certainly extends uh, not only to people who are not of our religion, but to people uh, who are of our religion with whom we disagree. And there's also a deeper meaning for the parable, according to the fathers of the church. They would say that Jesus himself is the Good Samaritan, uh, as you know, proved by his treatment of the robbed and wounded human race, right? So we're, we're the, the man who fell among robbers. 
Sin and the devil are the robbers that have to spoil this man of his robe of innocence and his supernatural gifts and grievously wounded him in his natural gifts. Thus man lay weak and helpless and half dead. He is still, uh, it's true, possessed of natural life, but had lost the supernatural life of grace as well as the prospect of eternal life and was powerless to raise himself from his misery of sin by any effort on his own. So neither priest nor Levite, in other words, neither the sacrifice or the law of the old covenant could help him or heal his wounds. That the law was only able to, to, to make him realize more fully his helplessness. And then the Son of God, moved by compassion, came down from heaven to help the poor fallen man, or that is the human race, living at enmity with God. And he healed his wounds with the wine of the most precious blood and the oil of his grace and took him to the inn, which is, of course, his church. When he left this earth, he returned to heaven. He gave to the guardians of his church, the traditionis custodes, the twofold treasure of his doctrine and his grace and ordered them to tend the still weak man until he himself should come back to reward everyone according to his works. This inconceivable love of the incarnate Son of God for all men is the great reason why we ought to love our neighbor and, yes, even love our enemies. All right, I want to say thank you for being with us here today. Always a great pleasure to... uh, to be on the air here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. want to encourage people to get the Virgin Most Powerful Radio app. You can download it onto your smartphone, iPhone or Android. It's uh, You can get uh, our podcasts. If you don't want to get the app, you can listen to our podcasts, uh, No Nonsense Catholic On Demand, at virtually every known uh, podcast platform that there is, just whatever your favorite one is. Just go looking for Virgin Most Powerful Radio or look for No Nonsense Catholic. And we will be there. Easiest way to do it, of course, is to visit our website, vmpr.org. And I am often remiss in um, uh, mentioning this, but of course, we do depend on your uh, generosity. Like the wounded man, we are, you are our good Samaritan. So we're counting on your prayers, which we need uh, most of all. And also, if you can, uh, your practical support, your financial support as well. And it's easy as pie if you visit the vmpr.org website. Uh, there's right on the homepage is a big button that says Donate Now. So you can click on that and, uh, and give a one-time gift or, or set up a uh, monthly donor. Set yourself up as a monthly donor. And you get, uh, there's perks involved with that, uh, downloads and so forth that are exclusive uh, to our monthly donors. And of course, um, you will be a part of our mass intentions and our daily prayer intentions here at VMPR, you know it's a it's really a family, and uh, and we appreciate you, and we invite you to be more involved. Okay, uh, what else? I also wanted to mention that in this coming month of September, on the 29th, which is the feast of the angels, feast of the archangels, uh, we will be having a uh, a conference here uh, at the Virgin Most uh, the, the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. So you can come here if you're in Southern California. You're going to be in the area, you are certainly welcome to join us. You can go to our website, um, and uh, we'll have the registration set up, and you'll be able to find out more about that. Also, uh, and this is not on the website yet, but in October, 
Um, I will be at the Sacred Heart Chapel. We're going to be doing a uh, a one-day conference regarding Catholic prophecy and uh, specifically the prophecies of Our Lady of Good Success. So if you are not familiar with the... Uh, um, the apparition of Our Lady of Good Success back in the um, 16th, 17th century in Quito, Ecuador. I invite you to come down. Or even if you've seen me give my presentation or read my booklet or, or heard the Lighthouse Catholic Media CD about Our Lady of Good Success, I went back to Ecuador, um, the 10th anniversary of my first visit, and uh, got an update on the prophecies and on the uh, devotion and how it's growing and spreading. And I would be very happy to share all of that with you. And and what uh, these various prophecies, you know, the light that they shed on the current situation in the church. I think it's uh, going to be edifying for uh, for you. And I'd certainly love to meet you and be able to talk with you about it face to face. So that's going to be in October. And we'll have details up as soon as we know for sure what the date is going to be and the times. And of course, it'll be here at the Sacred Heart Chapel also. Don't forget that our own Jesse Romero, Father Charles Murr, and others are going to be speaking uh, at a conference here in uh, September also. So um, I invite you to go and look for more information regarding that. And uh, next week, I mentioned uh, that we're going to take a look. I I reread Redemptionis Sacramentum recently, and I think it's important, um, not only I think, you know, it's important for, for those of us who regularly assist at the traditional Latin Mass, to continue to do so, to be humble and prayerful and simply continue to pray and worship and believe the way Catholics have always prayed and worshiped and believed. But I think it's also important that there be um, a renewal of the uh, ordinary form, if you will, and we don't call it that anymore, the Novus Ordo Liturgy, because that's where uh, most Catholics assist uh, at the Holy Sacrifice. they Most of them go to the Mass in that uh, form. And that Mass needs to be understood as um, representing what the Church has always taught. And, you know, the, the Vatican actually took pains to, to point that out, and I think that's something we need to revisit. So we'll be doing that next week and more, of course, right here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. A final thought, uh, we do have a new program, Night Moves, uh, which is uh, from Knights of Columbus. That's going to be joining our schedule. It did join our schedule this week, and uh, that'll be an ongoing thing. Also, uh, everything that we've ever recorded is pretty much available, archived on vmpr.org. That's the easiest way to look at the shows and look at the old shows. And uh, until next week, thank you so much for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.